Hi, I'm Gabe from Louisville, Kentucky. Hi, I'm Sarah from Albany, New York. Hi, I'm Samuel Hansen from Las Vegas, Nevada. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is Dan Sudjic. He's the author of The Language of Things, Understanding the World of Desirable Objects. He's also the director of the Design Museum in London. Uh, Dan, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's so great to have you on the show. It's absolutely great to be here. You write uh, a little bit in the beginning of the book about why you think of design as a language and not as some other appropriate metaphor. Why the language of things? It's because... Objects are always trying to tell us things about themselves, and we use them to try and tell other people something about ourselves. So the book was really an attempt to look at how it's done, what the words are, trying to understand what it is that design is really about. Are you interested in more than just the why? Are you interested in the, um, uh, in the sort of implications of design as well? I think design is a way to understand the world around us. It's um, it's a way to see what we think of as being important. It's the way that we create a sense of who we are, not just as people, but as countries or cities. Um, and it's far too important and interesting just to leave to designers, I think. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about uh, design in historical terms. When does the role of designer start to separate from the idea of, of a fine artist or the idea of an engineer or, uh, to some extent, craftsman? I think the big break is with crafts. If you look back at how things were made in the days when we weren't deluged with stuff, um, when most people had very few things, they were mostly made one at a time, especially for them. And that instantly changes, of course, when you get mass production machines, and that's when design first starts to appear as an activity on its own. And that's when design has to make up its mind whether it's trying to sell us more stuff or it's trying to make us a better world. And design is super schizophrenic about those things. It is about engineering desire. It's about making us buy things we don't necessarily need. And yet there's also this moral tradition of design as a way to make the world a better place. It seems like um, in some ways this story starts with uh, the arts and crafts movement um, and the idea that industrialization could have, the, that you could use industrialized uh, stuff to uh, create something that recalled something handcrafted. Tell, tell me a little bit about, about what you write about in the book around that idea. Design is always being used to remind us about other things. So initially, machine-made was bad in the same way that plastic was seen as bad. So design was used to make us think about it in different ways, about memories. Things get really complex when you start to try and 
analyse the idea of luxury, because of course in the old days, luxury meant handcrafted. It meant someone had spent hours and hours and hours trying to make something and precious materials. And machines totally change that. So how do you make a machine do something that looks luxurious? Of course, you can make things better than you can by hand. So you have to make the machine do something it doesn't want to do. Um, a really strange, weird thing. In the same way that now, um, you know, a Ford will actually have a huge investment compared to, say, a Bentley. You know, Bentley make, I don't know, 3,000 cars a year. So how can you possibly make a Bentley better than you can afford when you spent billions on the production line? You have to look at the things, the triggers that people associate with luxury, the smell of leather, the click of the door handle, the memories that the car associates with. It's like um, breeding rare sheep rather than designing cars these days. In what sense? Because uh, when you're talking about uh, luxury cars, it's trying to remind you of its heritage, its pedigree, that sense of where it's come from. You need to be reminded why it's special, even if it's not that special anymore. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the development of uh, the values of design over time. You, uh, One of the earlier things that you write about in the book is uh, the furniture designer Chippendale, um, it, it tell me a little bit about how his work fits into this, um, you know, larger historical narrative. I think that um, Chippendale was one of the first people to try to sell a lifestyle. He was producing a catalogue. He was trying to sell his furniture designs to a class of people who used those objects to say something about their taste, to impress people, to show not just their wealth, but their um, connoisseurship. And I suppose that's a tradition which... Uh, ended up with Ikea, Terence Conran, um, Lifestyle Magazine's Martha Stewart. It's using design to build a way of life, I guess. And at the same time, it's something, uh, it's a set of values that are very traditional in the, in the sense that you were just describing. I mean, the these, you know, you, you write about a bed that was so spectacularly expensive then, in part, not just because of its association with Chippendale, but also because of its astonishing sort of complexity and level of filigree. It's also strange how some things are valued above other things. Um, that The bed I was talking about was in a, uh, a house which Chippendale furnished the whole of, which got the Prince of Wales very excited last year when the house and its contents were about to be parted, and he stepped in to try and make sure the two stayed together. But the weird thing was the bed, had it been sold separately, would have cost far more than the house and 2,000 acres. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there are some things that we seem to value. Um, art somehow is valued above design because most cultures have this strange blind spot with utility. The things that we value most, the things we think are most precious, tend also to be the useless things. Art is, quote-unquote, useless, so it's much more precious than design. You write specifically about, um, uh, you compare uh, a painting by Mondrian to uh, uh, the blue chair, which is a, a chair designed by a designer whose name I can't recall, perhaps speaking to my values, but uh, is is representative of many of the same aesthetic qualities. Now, the Mondrian painting maybe sells for, for millions of dollars, while the chair, you, you say, can you can get for two grand. <laughs> Uh, you can get a copy of the chair for two grand, but you can get the chair that Rietveld himself sat on for maybe a quarter of a million dollars. And yet they look like the same artistic movement. They have very similar values. They were done about the same time. The two guys knew each other. And that's because 
art comes much higher up our values. Um, a very interesting economist um, from the 19th century, Torsten Veblen, um, American, who wrote a book called The Theory of the Leisure Class, in which a lot of these things um, came up for the first time. He used the word conspicuous consumption for the first time. And his view was that most cultures um, pay the most respect to those who don't have to work, so that um, warrior classes, priest classes that get the most, and they um, dress in a way to reflect that. So um, you know, wearing white shows that you doesn't care, you don't care about having to keep those things clean because you've got plenty of people to do it for you. Um, wearing high heels for women implies they don't have to kind of work. It's um, you know, the, the signage is there, and his view is very much that art, because it has these roots in magic and religion, basically, is the thing that we look up to, that we respect most, and that we pay the most for, or our society does. Whereas design, which has a useful tinge to it, is always burdened by that, um, the burden of utility, I've called it. And I think that's why now designers and architects are busy trying to push themselves up the social scale by trying to make things useless, trying to make sofas that are allegedly art, that this design art phenomenon has erupted as designers have seen that... Um, they're being outstripped by the art world. Yeah. How, how did the Industrial Revolution um, change the values that, uh, that, you know, that, that Chippendale, for example, was taking advantage of in, in selling an extraordinarily expensive bed? Well, people like William Morris, um, who could be seen as the first designer of modern times, um, reacted to the machine very, very badly. He thought that the machine was a terrible thing, that it was destroying our traditional values, that it undermined craftsmanship and produced lots of things that were bad and ugly. And he wanted to go back to those craft traditions even earlier than Chippendale, making things beautifully by hand. But of course, he was in a situation where the only people who could afford that was seriously wealthy. Um, he he was a socialist. Um, he, he believed that... Uh, that there should be good things, but he couldn't actually find a way to make them. And he, I guess, represents one pole of what design is. And the other, you'd have to say, would be Raymond Lowy, um, the man who um, paid a publicist to get him onto the cover of Time magazine, the man who said he streamlined the sales curve, and he was really excited about managing to double sales of Lucky Strike by changing the colour of the pack from green to white. Um, he unabashedly saw designers about selling stuff, the Morris tradition saw it as a more cultural thing. I think design has always been very schizophrenic about those two poles ever since. It, it seems like um, you, you know the the theory of conspicuous consumption was was introduced uh, right at the very end of the 19th century, just as um, we were sort of coming to terms with the Industrial Revolution, sort of like getting our heads around it and heading towards the idea of, of modernism. Not that far out from the idea of modernism. Um, how did how did modernism and, and the idea of celebrating the um, uh, function and utility uh, rather than simply the aesthetics or or at least the aesthetics of function and utility um, change design? Well, the modernists believed there was such a thing as function that you could analyze an object carefully enough, and then automatically from that analysis, something beautiful and workable would emerge. But of course. What do we mean by function? What is the function of a chair? Um, is it to keep you off the ground at a certain height, to keep you comfortable? Well, how do you measure those things? Is it to remind you that you were given it by your grandparents? Is it to make the house look modern? Um, you know, function is a complicated thing. What's the function of a wristwatch? 
telling the time? Well, that's really only an alibi for the other things that it does. What's the function of a car? Um, you know, I think we've now begun to understand that things have got much more emotional aspects as well as narrow definitions of purpose, and that's what modernism could never really come to terms with. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dan Sudjic, is the author of The Language of Things. We'll have more when we come back in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. If you want a taste of the lighter side of MaximumFun.org, try searching for Jordan Jesse Go in iTunes or visiting our blog and clicking on Jordan Jesse Go. It's an irreverent talk show for children of all ages, except for children. And it's absolutely free via podcast from MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. My guest, Dan Sudjic, is the director of the Design Museum in London and the author of The Language of Things. Let's get back to my conversation with him. We talked about those uh, those Chippendale furniture pieces um, that were created in the 18th century, and part of their value was to stand outside of time. Um, and you write you write write quite eloquently about the idea that someone who's extraordinarily rich is so rich that they can buy something that exists outside of the ideas of uh, fashion and the passing of interests. Something you even see here in the United States where, you know, there's certainly people who think that if you're really rich, then, uh, you know, you should still be wearing, you should always wear a three-button sack suit and um, a Brooks Brothers necktie and, uh, you know, a particular kind of button-down collar because it just symbolizes that you don't care about anything. <laughs> but actually care a great deal about things, too. Yes. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, the signs and signals are a kind of language, and languages do shift their meaning. So... Um, you know, bad becomes good. My daughter's generation sick means good. Um, and the same things happen about design. There are layers and layers of irony and knowingness, which is part of the way that humans see things and understand them. But our relationship with our things has changed. Um, they don't last as long. There was a time when objects grew old gracefully, that you got a wristwatch which you might keep for your whole life, that if you got a camera it might last for 20 years. If you had a telephone, uh, it stayed in the house and it lasted 25 years. Now the life cycle for a mobile phone is maybe 20 months, maybe less. A digital camera, maybe two years. And these things don't have the character and the quality that objects used to have. And I think we haven't really come, come to terms with that yet. One of the things that I, I really enjoyed about your book was how personal it was. And you write you write evocatively right in the very beginning about... about uh, your, per, your your process, both the guilt and excitement of buying your, I think it was your fifth laptop in eight years. <laughs> yes, I mean, in the old days, you assume that something so smart, so precious, so wonderful would something would be something that you were going to grow old with, but you realise, of course, that these things don't last, and that the book is, in some ways, I guess. Um, uh, uh, a purging, an exorcism, a sense of uh, self-disgust that I'm part of this process, that I do buy things and I'm seduced by things um, because of how they look. You know, I bought my last laptop because it was this exquisitely rational black all-over package. Uh, black is the colour which we think is not cosmetic, it's not trying to sell us something, which of course means it's trying to sell us something quite hard. 
And as soon as the laptop came out of its container, I realized that this wonderful object had feet of clay, literally. It was all black, except the white power cord. (laughs) (laughs) And you were, as as we used to say on on the playground, moated, corroded, your booty exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we destroy the things that we love, because as soon as we touch these things, they start to show the marks of skin and flesh and Um, we make things look worse just by touching them when they're made of polycarbonate. You're someone who's the director of a design museum, so in part your job is to curate the world of design and and pick what you like. Um, So what what ideas have you settled upon in terms of what is valuable and important uh, in design? I think what's so important about design is that it does give us this way to understand the things that uh, we make, how they're made, what they mean. Um, design is both how and why. The thing I always find interesting is if you compare design with art, if you go to an art museum, explanation and interpretation sort of gets in the way. If you're looking at Guernica's, you know, Picasso's painting Guernica, which is you know, uh, a devastating indictment of brutality and war, it might be interesting to know you know, what were the German aircraft that bombed that town? But actually, to have a photograph of one in the same space as the artwork would get in the way. It's interesting to know how Jackson Pollock applies dripping paint to a canvas, but it gets in the way. Whereas, if you actually have a design museum, then you know you want to know exactly the fact that, that you know you might have a German aircraft which took part in the bombing of Guernica. By explaining design, you're saying so much more. Art, when it's explained, seems to be diminished. Why were you interested um, in, you are a former architecture critic, why why were you interested in design and applied art rather than uh, fine art or um, in engineering for that matter? Engineering matters a, a, a great deal. Um, I think I've always actually been interested in trying to um, erode the barriers between those areas. Um, you know, the book does talk about art as well as design. Uh, it talks about fashion um, and I think that's when you get a, a wider picture. It's when you try and put things in all those contexts rather than one narrow one that interesting things start to happen. What, what can you get out of putting them all into one context? Culture seems to be based on narrower and narrower fields of people knowing a great deal about um, a little. And I think that sometimes you need to know the how and the why of things, and that gives you a kind of broader perspective on what's actually happening as the big picture. I want to talk for a second about the fashion part of your book. Um, Design is often framed in terms of solving a problem. Uh, I had the book designer Chip Kidd on the show and uh, talked with him about how one of the parts of design that he really loves, and perhaps the one that he most loves, is the idea of uh, defining a problem and, and setting up a solution to it. Um, and uh, in that theoretical sense, uh, like your solution is in some way permanent. Um, and fashion is very much about novelty um, and about a constant cycle and churn of ideas. So what, what is the tension between those, two, between those two principles? We tell each other that fashion is somehow frivolous, but I always think of that um, 
the famous uh, line in The Devil War Prada in which um, Meryl Streep does the kind of great defensive fashion's role in creating work and employment and industry. And I think it's absolutely true. If you look at where industry comes from, it's usually the textile industry. It's what's driven innovation in so many cultures. It's what has created so much employment. It's what's created so much innovation. Fashion is important. Uh, it's not trivial or frivolous. It's about things that matter. It's about sex. It's about wealth. It's about how people feel about each other. Um, all, this, all this is a big deal. The problem can be with some of the edges of the, of, of the business, which do become um, neurotically rapidly turning over. But, I mean, that's that's what comes with the territory. I mean, the, the fashion is fascinating to look at what it's done to so many areas. It's, um, you know, if you look at the way that, that fashion sells itself now, it's ready to co-opt anything to do it with. Think about the you know, Prada, which uses um, art photographers like Andreas Gursky to photograph their uh, shoes. Uh, it uses uh, big-name architects like Rem Koolhaas or Herzog and de Meuron to do their stores. That's trying to tell us something about what they're selling in a big way. What is it trying to tell us? It's saying that this is not just clothes. It's a lot more than that. It's trying to sell by showing how smart you are to know those things. You wrote the book, at least the first draft of the book, before the uh, uh, world-famous global economic meltdown. Um, and uh, you finished the book after the world-famous global economic meltdown. Um, how did that change your perspective on, on telling, this, uh, telling this story? The credit crunch changed everything. Um, it's as if the era of irrational exuberance, uh, which you could see not just in finance, but in architecture and fashion and objects, suddenly hit a brick wall and so many of the things so many of the extreme excesses suddenly looked so last year and there was a sense that there was going to be a new sobriety but then this thing kicked in about well it is our job to buy things as well we're going to create more work and in a way that i think underscored some things i've been thinking about with that i think that um the 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 imperative to um change our possessions so often is still there, still very powerful. Technology is still driving that. We're still its victims. What are the what are the best values of design, do you think? I'm asking you to make a very qualitative assessment. <laughs> design, a beautifully designed object can give enormous pleasure. There's something about a product that performs brilliantly, effortlessly well, invisibly, that can give real pleasure, that can make an experience memorable. Um, objects can provide you with memories of things. They can give a sense of elegance and order and purpose in so many ways that range from the way that you know, a book is designed or a typeface um, can give you associations, can give a depth to something. Um, there are constant source of fascination, of innovation. Um, they're showing how people's minds work. They can be signals of all kinds of things. You don't have to go to the extremes of um, Otto Eicher, the famous German typographer who believed that if only the Germans had been less fond of capital letters, they could have resisted fascism easily. <laughs> um, what, are, what are some of the objects that 
you have the most fondness for in in your own life? Like literally physically and not just academically. On the top shelf in my study, I still have my father's manual typewriter. The keys are rusted together. Um, It's an object which anybody under 30 would not recognize what it's for. It certainly doesn't work. The ribbon... I would probably be able to recognize what it was for. I wouldn't think it was for driving nails or something like that, if that's what you're suggesting. (laughs) But for how much longer? It's strange how some things do um, become memories, don't they? I mean, like the sign for telephone is still the old-style Bakelite black telephone, even though this has now vanished, in the same way that speed cameras, I don't know about here in America, but in Britain, a speed camera sign is an old bellows camera, even though it's digital. Uh, On railway lines, in the sign of a... Uh, a train ahead is a steam locomotive, even though they don't look like that. Um, you know, some things do become archetypes in that sense. But yeah, it's you know that object doesn't do anything except remind me of my dad. It's 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 amazing in, in that it is totally functionless in the in the physical world, but hugely functional because memories are something that we need. They're ways that we make sense of life, and they give some meaning to our existence and some kind of purpose. Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the San Diego America. It was so great to have you. It's been great to be here. Dan Sujic is the author of The Language of Things, Understanding the World of Desirable Objects. He's also the director of the Design Museum in London. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. Our editor is Nick White our intern, John Kim. My dog's name is Coco. She was barking a minute ago. Hopefully she won't start barking while I try finishing this. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org and you can always email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.